0: Doing a new startup is not for everyone, but if people are compelled to do this or have this like kind of nagging feeling inside that like, hey, I, I could really do this, they need to, you know, like we say in journalism, like go with your gut, like trust your gut. What does it say? What's it telling you? Because if you have that feeling, there's probably something there.
1: As newsrooms contract, many journalists are finding themselves without jobs. Rather than looking for a job at another legacy newsroom, more and more out-of-work journalists are becoming entrepreneurs and launching their own startups. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Kelsey Ryan is the founder of The Beacon, a non-profit online news outlet based in Kansas City focused on local, in-depth journalism in the public interest. Kelsey is also the manager of membership and communications at Line Publishers, a journalism association helping local news entrepreneurs build and grow financially sustainable small businesses. Welcome to the podcast, Kelsey.
0: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
1: So when I have a journalist come in, one of the things I like to do is ask them about their journalist journey. You know, how did you become a journalist and, and how did you end up at the Beacon?
0: I did not intend to become a journalist. I think a lot of people say that. You know, I, I did yearbook in high school. And then when I was in college, my boyfriend at the time, now husband, was a photographer and, and he wanted a part-time job at the student newspaper. And I was like, well, you know, I need a part-time job too. And they had some reporting positions available. And I thought, well, how hard can that be? Uh, so, Which was really arrogant. But I started covering student government and faculty senate and Obama on the campaign trail through the Midwest uh, in Kansas, which was pretty rare at the time to have any major candidates come through. And that first semester, I was just completely hooked. So I eventually became editor of my student paper, interned at the Student Press Law Center in DC, and also at the Joplin Globe in Missouri. Got my first job right out of school at the Joplin Globe and started the day after an F5 tornado, destroyed about a third of the city. So Bit of a baptism by fire there, and eventually made my way back to Wichita, Kansas, which is the area where I'm originally from, and worked at the Wichita Eagle for several years, and then worked at the Kansas City Star, which is a sister paper, both owned by McClatchy. And my background, you know, really in uh, accountability journalism and and covering government and doing data and investigative reporting. So yeah, I, I was at the Star and was on the 2018 Pulitzer finalist team for our series about government transparency or the lack thereof in Kansas, and uh, then was laid off a few months later and found myself in a position I think a lot of journalists found themselves in. So that's really what kind of led me down the path of starting my own news organization and really becoming interested in news entrepreneurship and, and the position and role with Lion.
1: So, it sounds like in many ways it's, it's a typical journey, not a, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it's just, it's a familiar journey, I guess, is, is what I say. And, uh, you know, being on a, a prize Surprise winning team one moment and then a few months later being, you know, out looking for a job, I, I can imagine that's sort of the highs and the lows of our industry at the moment. So, how did you feel when you, when you were laid off at that point? What made you decide to go the entrepreneurial route?
0: So there were a lot of factors. Obviously the, the writing had been on the wall with legacy media for a long time, but this was 2018 and I was 29 years old. And knowing that I have an entire career ahead of me, that traditional newspapers probably are not the answer for journalism anymore. And, you know, knowing that, but having kind of, I don't know, this is, history and already like a short career of only being in newspapers that was really all I knew but I knew that others were experimenting with things in other parts of the country so you know I knew about the Texas Tribune of course knew about ProPublica on the national scale and really made a decision the day I got laid off to not work for a legacy news organization ever again and That was a pretty quick, it was like the seven stages of grief or whatever, like all in one day. Uh, So um, it was a pretty quick realization that like newspapers were not the answer. At least the business model for newspapers is not the answer. So, you know, one of the things too was family is in the Midwest. I care about the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. And, you know, I had some opportunities to leave for jobs in other parts of the country and just ultimately decided like, no, we need to have... A strong journalism ecosystem here, and I care about this place. So, that was really kind of the the genesis for for that.
1: Did you start it by yourself, or was this something that you did with several other people?
0: It was me, but and you know, in the beginning, it was really tentative, like coffees with people, other journalists. Like, is this a crazy idea? And uh, you know, eventually, kind of got a kick in the rear to say like, you need to stop talking to just journalists about this and like start talking to the community, you know, at large. (laughs) And so basically kind of laying the foundation and framework for what I hope to create and what we could get, you know, the community's buy-in for over the course of a year. And then, you know, really building our staff out and You know, we were planning on initially doing our soft launch this summer, but it sped up with the pandemic because of the lack of health reporting available in our area and us knowing that we had access to several former healthcare reporters. And so, you know, it really sped up the launch uh, cycle for us, but also was just a critical need that we needed to help fill in the community.
1: So it's really kind of fascinating. I, I like the idea that you sort of recognized the problems with legacy, but then you also saw that there still was a need that needed to be served within the community. You know, when you dreamed up the, the beacon, I mean, what did you envision it, you know, its mission is and how it was going to accomplish that?
0: Yeah. So my background, like I mentioned, is really in accountability and investigative reporting. And I've done that through a lot of data journalism and being a big nerd about open records and sunshine requests. Um, And so that was really the area that as a journalist, I saw a need for that kind of reporting to continue and to be more robust. Made a decision really early on that we didn't need more breaking news coverage and just something that's kind of the antithesis of the 24-hour News cycle at least in our community that just is not really something that we need at this point so that was a big part of it and then you know one of the first hire we made was actually an audience development manager and so that was a really you know crucial decision in that you know we need to actually talk to the community and, and talk to the people who would be consuming this to help shape what it is because you know it's the whole if you build it will they come kind of question from from, from that movie you know like you, you want to make sure that' you're, you're not just building something for journalists you know for the sake of journalists you want to make sure that it's something that people will actually use so so that was a really big part and, and we had community listening sessions and we were doing ongoing surveys and market research because it just felt like a lot of the data that was out there was not really focused on our market, or the Midwest, or people here in our area. So we really wanted to just get out there and talk to them.
1: So with this idea that you had at the beginning of the sort of data-driven, in-depth reporting, you know, through your listening sessions, through you getting to know who your audience was, was that something that they, they saw or they identified as something that they would really be interested in?
0: That really resonated with them. And, you know, we also found that not doing opinion pieces was something that was kind of universally liked by people from all political stripes. So that was an interesting find. People here also really connected with solutions journalism and this idea that, you know, we can't just be reporting everything that's terrible. We also have to be talking about what people are trying to do to fix things in the community and, you know, reporting out the different things that are actually going on and and the attempts and, you know, what's also data driven, you know, like what have other cities done to reduce violent crime, you know, and then comparing those policies to what we have here, that kind of reporting. So that was something that was really resonating with them. And then also, you know, we had a really strong reaction. A lot of folks wanted to see an anti-racist newsroom as well. And so that was a value, a core value that really came out of those listening sessions as well.
1: It's an interesting idea, the way you express it. What, what is an anti-racist newsroom?
0: Yeah, so we're trying to figure that out, just like I think a lot of people are. But it was something that this came up in our listening sessions, you know, prior to the pandemic, prior to, you know, the killing of George Floyd. This was just something that has been at the forefront in, in Kansas City, where, where I'm located, because, you know, we're a border, we're by bi-state metro Kansas was a free state, Missouri was a slave state. I mean, that tension has always been here. There's a fascinating history there and a legacy of racism, just like in many places or all across the US. And so that was something that came to mind when we were talking to people. And so for example, some of the things that came up in these conversations were, you know, people being acutely aware of when, you know, people who look like them, are only portrayed in, you know, mugshots or like, you know, athletes. Um, so crime stories are athlete stories, and people were just aware of that. Like their community wasn't being covered in local media from their perspective or from a, from frankly, a, an accurate <laughs> portrayal. And so that was one example that people mentioned. Also, the diversity of the newsroom, people were concerned that, you know, it was um, like a lot of local media is told just from like white perspectives or by white folks who are going into other communities. And so, you know, was something really important that is a problem all over the place, of course, but is something that, you know, as a startup, we can try to make it a real focus of ours in terms of being really uh, diverse in our hiring, you know, working on the, the, the quote unquote journalism pipeline and making sure that when people are even doing something like applying for a job with us that we are not using language that basically others them or makes them feel like they, you know, can't do this kind of work. So that's something that was like some very specific things we're working on exactly like what our policies are and how we can, you know, continue to get community input on this because it's something that's so important. It needs a lot of care, of course. And I think there are a lot of other newsrooms that are that are working on doing this, too.
1: For sure. It's great to see that because you're in a position as a a newsroom, a new newsroom that you're able to sort of from the ground up. Okay, well, let's decide what direction we're going to go and sort of commit to building that type of newsroom. That's really great. Now, what led you to start the Beacon as a nonprofit newsroom? And, and tell me about your your business model, how it works.
0: Yeah, so I think the first thing that I I try to explain to folks is that nonprofit isn't a business model; it's just a structure, kind of a means to an end. Because the fact is, like, if you have a for-profit or a nonprofit model, at the end of the day, if you aren't creating revenue, if you aren't having a steady stream of money coming in, like, it doesn't matter. And so. Ultimately, you know, and I really, really went back and forth on this, but ultimately decided to go for the nonprofit route because of the idea that we could use grants as startup capital, you know, getting venture capital investment for a for-profit journalism entity probably isn't going to be as successful as, you know, getting grants or philanthropic support in the beginning and then trying to transition your business model over time. So there's a lot of research involved and a lot of talking with attorneys and was really lucky to get, you know, hooked up with some local business attorneys who agreed to, you know, file our paperwork pro bono and all of that. But basically, you know, it came down to what is going to be the way for us to have this go quickly and be able to get a framework in place sooner. And, you know, we were able to essentially get a fiscal sponsor. We're awaiting our 501c3 designation letter right now from the IRS. And then, you know, we were able, because we had a fiscal sponsor and we're, you know, in this process to secure grants and that allows me to pay people full time to work uh, which is really important and there's people who bootstrap it from the beginning and that's awesome and being able to do that is very impressive but i wanted to make sure that we were you know paying people and creating a sustainable workforce and being equitable in that process so So everyone that we hire, you know, is getting, they get paid. We pay our freelancers. We pay our freelance copy editors. We have staff right now. We have summer interns. All of our summer interns are paid. And, you know, that to me is, you know, just a value that we wanted to have.
1: So I did want to circle back to something that you said early on about the pandemic that sort of, you know, brought you forward in your original launch. Well, when were you originally going to launch?
0: Yeah, we were originally going to launch this summer. Yeah. we already had, of course, some really good investigative stories, you know, being worked on by some of our freelancers in like February and March, and then the pandemic hits, and it's like suddenly those stories, while important, are just not as relevant. So they're they're still on the back burner, but it wasn't the fastest, you know, thing. I'd started poking around on this idea in late 2018, and you know, working full time and and trying to launch a startup, and then you know, also putting these pieces in place for a timeline. And so the pandemic, like with everyone, you know, just threw a total wrench in, in things. But we wanted to try to use the opportunity to to show what we can do and, and to do a soft launch that way.
1: So how did you pivot to do that?
0: Well, luckily, we had a lot of those freelancers and folks already connected to us the positive part of so many media organizations shrinking is there are a lot of freelance journalists available. There's a lot of talent. And so in that kind of situation, we were able to connect with, with several really amazing you know, freelance journalists who, who are very experienced and just kind of quickly pivot. And, you know, we, we started initially with just a newsletter and we had grown and grown our newsletter. And in May we decided, okay, let's go ahead and get a like a kind of a bridge website <laughs> set up to help, so that we can start doing data visualizations. Because you know newsletters are rather constrained in what you can put out, like what kind of content you can can get out, and your length as well. And so we um, got our initial kind of website up and running, and then we'll be doing a a full website, like a much more built out website, this fall. So it's a phased kind of MVP, minimum viable product kind of approach, but that's the method that to our madness, I guess.
1: <laughs> so you know, I know I know I'm kind of jumping around here with the questions, but were you an entrepreneurial thinker, or did you have to become one?
0: That was probably already a bit of a bit in my DNA when I was a kid. This is so embarrassing. When I was a kid, I was the kid who I took. German classes at the high school when I was in middle school and so um, one of the things they did at the Ger- the German classes is they sold candy as a fundraiser and, and I was that kid who would like buy candy at high school and then go back to the middle school and sell it lunch for like a premium and <laughs> make money off of it so I could buy more candy uh, and, uh, so like I did that and I like I sold beaded jewelry as a kid and at like craft fairs and then as an adult as a side hustle I had a terrarium business like in Wichita where I sold like terrariums. so like I had dabbled in these things and you know my dad had been a small business owner my mom was a teacher so like I feel like those two things something got put in, <laughs> into my brain about like you know wanting to teach people and things and grow and explain things and, and know about the world but also like how to make it sustainable or work. And and so, yeah, something meshed there.
1: Well, you're pretty lucky because, you know, a lot of journalists don't have that in their nature. And, you know, they may want to, to launch a site or, or do something. So they have to kind of go out and, and find that information and how to do a business, how to build something sustainable to meet a cause. You know, the reason that you and I are talking today is because you helped organize a recent webinar for line publishers about how to manage a local business in the face of the pandemic. And I know we, we just talked about it, you know, what are some of the challenges that the pandemic has created for local newsrooms, both editorially and uh, business-wise?
0: Yeah. So from an editorial perspective, you know, we're all used to working in in some level of a breaking news cycle and that pressure, but this is the one that you're both living and covering, right? that's a challenge. You know, for example, like, I worked in Joplin, Missouri, right after that tornado hit. And while the newsroom did a stellar job, you know, it took its toll mentally, because people were not only reporting about the tornado, but also living in that city. And some of them lost their homes, and they knew people who had died. and, And, you know, you kind of, you come away with that humbled experience. And, and so to a degree, this is what's happening. The, the difference is, to me anyway, in Joplin, it was, you know, kind of an isolated event. All these people poured in to help, right? There were people in our newsroom, there were freelancers that, you know, there was all this assistance from other journalists, but also just from the community at large. And so you had that support system. And what's happened with this pandemic is that, we don't have people coming to help at least, you know, individually, you know, we're all in it. And so that's, that's kind of the mental, I guess, preparation and coverage wise difference from, from being a journalist in this situation. Other challenges of course are the ad revenue model for online advertising, just completely going away print, obviously, you know, dying. And so there's these revenue challenges at the time you have extraordinary challenges just with your own newsrooms and people dealing with the pandemic personally that takes an effect over time. So so I would say there's there's a lot going on. And of course, you know, just the fact that that journalism has contracted in terms of you know the print dailies, you know, being pulled back. There are fewer trained healthcare journalists out there. People who know the difference between a peer-reviewed study. People who know trained healthcare professionals to interview. People who have uh, the knowledge about what healthcare data actually means. And that clearly, I think we can say pretty clearly, like had an impact in the type of coverage we saw early on and how everything was so sporadic and the information was, there was a lot of void there. And I think that, that largely has to do with the the pullback on healthcare journalism.
1: In the beginning of your, you know, your idea for your newsroom is that you, you know, one of the areas that you were going to cover was healthcare and you had some healthcare reporters Mm -hmm. already working on on, on stuff. I would assume they were able to sort of turn things around and and get out content of interest early on. Was that something that, that happened?
0: Yeah, that was that was something. I mean, um, I covered healthcare when I was at the Wichita Eagle for a period of time and we had the former Kansas City Star healthcare reporter. We had a former healthcare reporter for the St. Louis Dispatch. And so that was just incredibly valuable to have people like that available to us. And then also, you know, just by happenstance when we had applied for the Report for America program at the end of last year, we we wanted a health and environment reporter. And so in June actually our healthcare reporter started full time. That was just fortuitous. But yeah, this is just it's clearly something that that's needed and you know you need to have people who are used to covering healthcare not just as, you know, human interest feature stories but who understand the systems and the policies and the research and the public data in particular that are all part of this this beat.
1: So what has been the response back from your audience for your coronavirus coverage?
0: As a startup, we're growing and we're getting, you know, more newsletter signups. We're growing our social media audiences. One of the things that we did early on, and I think this was really a crucial choice, was in March, you know, I saw that the Chronicle for Higher Ed had created a private Facebook group for folks in higher ed to talk about coronavirus plans as the colleges were all shutting down. And I thought, you know, we should really create a Kansas City version of that Facebook group. And so I created Kansas City coronavirus updates and made me um, like the group moderator. And then we decided to ask the other local newsrooms in our area if they wanted to help moderate, and if they wanted to have their journalists be able to use this group as a way to find sources and information and get story ideas. And so that was kind of our first kind of collaborative approach. It was an olive branch, not only to the existing media organizations in our area, but also a way to lend credibility to the group. It's been heavily moderated it's a, I'm proud to say it's a fact-based environment on social media, which is really <laughs> difficult <laughs> to say in most cases. And it's been a place, of course, where we share our coronavirus stories. But, um, you know, it's, it's over 5,000 people that are on this group. And we have little screenshots that I keep in a folder of things that make me happy because you don't often get those as a journalist. And there's some screenshots in there of people just thanking us for creating this place where they could go for reliable information. And so that's, that's kind of the response we got from that.
1: And before we wrap up, I think what we should also talk about, about Lion Publishers, you know, tell me about that organization and what it is and how it can help small newsrooms.
0: So Lion Publishers, it stands for, we didn't say it already, local independent online news and it was founded in 2012. So it's a pretty young journalism association group in that way. And to be honest, kind of started more as a club of people who had done this kind of work had started their own local news sites. And we like, Hey, there's not a journalism association for us. Like let's, let's get a group together. And now it's, it's really morphed into, into what it is today. And, you know, there's, I think we have about 300 members, if not more. And those are all, you know, independent publishers across the United States and Canada, which is really exciting. I think it's a, a story you don't Hear a lot about you know we hear all the time about the doom and gloom of newspapers, but there are these folks out there who are making it work in their communities every day, and so that's that's really pretty inspiring actually. And you know a lot of what Lion is trying to do, like I mentioned before, is you know grow more lions. We want to see lions across the United States and Canada like prolific you know we want to see more people doing this in their communities and not just in the big cities but in the smaller ones and so we are you know working on a lot of those tools and resources together for people and just trying to really build this community of news entrepreneurs who every day kind of straddle that business and editorial side you know they, they have to they have to answer these same questions that we've been talking about and and navigate them themselves so yeah, it's just, a, it's a really cool organization. And I've just learned so much uh, from, from being a part of it as, as a member and also just working there. And I just, I really, I highly encourage, we, we actually started a new tier this year, a couple of months ago, actually called the aspiring entrepreneurship tier. And that is for people who have the idea like a serious idea. Maybe they've created a, a pitch deck or have some sort of rough business plan or they've, you know, grabbed some URLs. Like they they're seriously intent on starting a new news outlet. And so we created a special tier for people like that because a lot of our other members were people who were already up and running and had been running for a while. So yeah, I just want to put a, a plug for that because I think people need to know that there is a place for them if they're in that uh, situation. So
1: to sort of wrap this up, what advice would you give to somebody who might be interested in in starting, you know, their own news outlet or you know, establishing a news presence in a, in a community?
0: Even just in the last year, like so many more resources are available than what I even looked at in 2018 and 2019. To be honest. And here's my shameless plug for Lion, of course, uh, because, you know, a big part of what we're doing at Lion is, you know, working with Google and, and others to create like starter packs and, you know, playbooks and, you know, just take all of that knowledge of news entrepreneurs and put it in one place where you can holistically just like look at it and be like, okay, why do I want to do this? and what do I need to do to do this? Like to kind of lay a really good foundation. And so that's a big part of of what we're doing right now and and trying to take all of that knowledge and just not let it go to waste because it's so important. And doing a new startup is not for everyone. It's definitely not for everyone, but if people are compelled to do this or have this like kind of nagging feeling inside that like, hey, I, I could really do this, they need to, you know, like we say in journalism, like go with your gut, like trust your gut, what does it say? What's it telling you? Because if you have that feeling, there's probably something there and that you need to explore it a little bit more. So yeah, I think there's just, there's so much. And the other thing too is being good at journalism alone is, is not enough to create something that's sustainable. I wish it was, of course I wish it was, but you have to take the time to learn about the business side and, and to learn about what it takes to run a business and to just be, you know, knowledgeable and not afraid of numbers. So I think that's a really big part of it too. Or if surround yourself with people who are, right? We're good as journalists at finding sources and finding people who are smarter than us to talk about things. And so, you know, that's a lot of what I did early on is just put on my journalist hat and find people who could tell me what things were and how they worked and, you know, creating a board of people who, we're not journalists, but cared about journalists, but could offer all of these skills in areas that, you know, I frankly don't have. And so that's a huge part of it. And, and, you know, Lion too, you know, in that way has all of these other publishers in it that, you know, when you're a member, you can talk to the other members. And we have a really collaborative membership of people who are constantly asking each other questions. <laughs> and, and there's somebody in every case who's done that or experienced that problem, you know, so you're not alone in that way, which is really nice.
1: Yeah. It's nice to have other people that, that may have knowledge that they can share. They don't make what you're doing. And if for no other reason, they're going to be able to tell you, yeah, I had that same experience when I was up in the middle, middle of the night, worried about something about my business, not working. Kelsey, thank you very much for talking. This is, this is fascinating. You know, I wish you luck with the beacon and of course with line publishers. Take care.
0: Thanks so much.
1: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And me Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.